There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, there aren't too many comedians who could make this joke on The Tonight Show. So we were in northern Iraq. We're about to walk off the base, me and the two other comedians. And the sergeant looks at us and goes, hey, fellas, uh, make sure to remove your name tags because I don't want you guys getting kidnapped. I was like, kidnapped? We can get kidnapped? I started to freak out. And then I remembered I'm in Kuwait and Iraq and I look like everybody else there. You know, <laughs> If anybody's going to get kidnapped, it's probably these two very white comedians I'm working with. Some terrorists were to hop out of a van like, hey, here's the kidnapping. Get in the van now. I'd be like, Habibi? <laughs> Habibi, I said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was stand-up comedian Mo Ammer talking about his very unique experience telling jokes for troops in Iraq as a Palestinian refugee from Houston, Texas. You might recognize Mo from his hilarious supporting role on Rami Youssef's Hulu show Rami, but he also just dropped an excellent new stand-up special called Mohammed in Texas, his second hour for Netflix. And I am thrilled to have him on today's show to talk about how he went from touring the world in the early 2000s with his Allah Made Me Funny comedy group to becoming one of the most impressive stand-ups on the scene right now. We also get into the very unique experience of performing in a cornfield at the height of the pandemic with his longtime mentor and friend, Dave Chappelle. I'm going to be honest, since Mo was calling in from his trailer on the set of his upcoming autobiographical Netflix series, the audio quality on this one leaves a little something to be desired, but it was still a really compelling talk, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to it. Here's me with Mo Ammer. All right, let's do this. How are you doing? You're uh, you're doing stunts. You're you're filming your show. What's going on? Yeah, I am. I'm filming my TV series currently. My uh, script series. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I'm very, I'm looking forward to it. I've heard little bits about it, but I don't know too much about what it, what it's going to be. What's uh, you're you're almost done filming the the whole first season, is that right? Yeah, we're uh, man, it's crazy. It's forty days of filming. We're like five days away, I think, from being wrapped. It's pretty crazy. Wow. I yeah. Think, yeah, some B roll stuff after, but um, yeah, pretty much done. That's easy stuff. But right okay. now, yeah, we're we're in a home stretch, big home stretch. I'm literally covered. <laughs> but what, what, what kind of stunt were you doing? I can't. I can't say oh, okay. much. All right. It'll uh, it'll <laughs> really, really ruin it. Yeah. But uh, but it's yeah, man. It's just been uh, a lot of fun. The show is about loosely based about my not loosely. It's very much so based on my life. Loosely about the first special, basically like a refugee in America trying to work under the table while working through the bureaucracy and telling the story of someone that's been in America for 25 years and still waiting for his citizenship 
and what does it take to do that, that while telling these great origin stories um, through flashbacks? You know, it's a lot of fun. And it's funny. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's horrible. It's very <laughs> dramatic. Very dramatic. Really, <laughs> honestly, bro, it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely very funny. Of course, situationally, all the things I get myself into and the stories that I have from my life are pretty um, pretty fun. Bringing them bringing them out in the series, but also, of course, there's a lot of tense moments. You know, every comedy has drama relief. Every drama has comedy relief, and that's how it works. But yeah, definitely a lot of a lot of heavy stuff in the series with the comedy for sure. All grounded and real and, and tasteful. Well, I definitely want to talk about your new Netflix special, uh, Muhammad in Texas, because I thought it was just fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, so I noticed in your in your first Netflix special, you had Chappelle introducing you. And now in this one, you have The Rock introducing you. So I feel like you really are, are one-upping yourself uh, each time. It's so funny because not everyone knows that was Dave's voice, but the people the people that know, know. And he, he was actually there for that taping in 2018. Uh, we didn't use any of that footage. Maybe it'll be released at some point. But um, but yeah, man, it was just one of those things. Honestly, man, I was I wasn't even intending to use it in the special at all. It was like something that I texted Dwayne about. I was like, "Yo, DJ, you know, it'd be so cool. Be such a great surprise for the audience." And I had zero intention or even asking him uh, to put it in the in the actual special. It was his idea, you know. It was. It was his idea and i was like yeah <laughs> hell yeah it'd be so cool <laughs> just to kind of give uh, give the audience at home a little peek into what happened that night because obviously nobody in the audience knew and it was such a great surprise and it was just fun it was really fun to have it um and i definitely i don't know I, it's all downhill from here <laughs> <Obama's>, <laughs> yeah. who are you gonna get next <laughs> obama i don't yeah, know I, I think that's your only option <laughs> so you met you met the rock uh doing uh black adam is that right Correct. Yeah. What was what was that experience like? You filmed the. Uh, you're, you're done with that filming that movie. Yeah, yeah. He's just a really jealous person because of how <laughs> shape I am uh, and little effort I put into it, and how uh, you know, he just he just um, the whole time he was just trying to catch up. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I dealt with it, bro, and uh, and I barely got out of there, but um, glad it's over. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he he's such a freaking uh, amazing guy, man. He's exactly who you get. Like what you see is what you get with him. He's so cool. He's so down to earth. Uh, really funny. I wish uh, I wish he wasn't so perfect, but you know, every, <laughs> he he really is such a great guy, man. He's very polite on set. He's there. He's just um, like I said, man. He's really really down to earth, dude. Like when I first met him, I was like, hey, man, what do I call you? I was calling you. Some people call you Rock, some people call you DJ, some people call you Dwayne. He goes, Daddy, which is going to be So I feel like, you know, you used your your first special, uh, Vagabond, to really introduce yourself, you know, tell your story, you know, as you said, and that's also, you know, kind of what you're doing with this TV show. But with your second special, you know, it really, it, it branches out into so many other things. So what did you want to do? How did you approach, you know, this second special after you kind of have told more of your your personal life story to to take the second special and do something different with it. How did you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's something that happened really organically. First of all, it was just so annoying constantly explaining myself. So I appreciate you understanding what I was doing with the first special was just give people a lot of that backstory and, and, and just get that out of my system and, and the really funny entertaining stories. 
Um, and this is just like, you know, real stand-up. It's just like, oh, I'm not real, like not insinuating the other one was it. It's just like really just talking about feeling free and, and saying whatever I want to say and, and um, at least like really um, going through my thought process and things that I truly reflect on and bring those forward. And that was happening pre-pandemic. Like I was already developing the hour. Didn't know exactly which direction I was going to go yet. But I was, you know, it is like you go on tour and start figuring it out and, and start taking out jokes that you did, you know, 10 years ago, this year's ago, the new ones, fresh ones, just mixing it up, trying to figure out where it's going. And then um, I had a solid, you know, like two hours ready to play with pre-pandemic. Then the pandemic happened, obviously everything. And I threw that all away. You know, I just like all this material is now to the side. I need to, I need to, I need to move forward as if there is, I have no material. And, um, and that's what I did. Uh, and I just started assessing the situation within the pandemic and how people were reacting to the media and from how the information was being filtered down stock market of money and is it real is it not real so it just started from there and then i just started playing with it and, and molding it bring it back together and it was just a beautiful thing that happened and i was i was filming black adam i was writing my show i was you know not much time to tour uh thankfully i toured like a dog pre-pandemic so i had that there and i did all the shows with dave in the cornfield with all those great comedians and, and artists that were there and the encore was a complete accident to be honest um, the encore was something the crowd was just really um, going berserk. And I just, I was like, oh, I'll just tell the story because I have a Banksy, I have the two walls, I have the Mexican border wall. It's very subtle to some people. Some people is very, you know, uh, right there in their face. But but I just thought, hey, this could be a really good story about how the first time I went to Berlin, uh, which is where my family's village is, is from. And, um, and so I just, yeah, so I just told that story. And then I didn't know I had the documentary footage. I was just like, didn't we film that? Where is that? <laughs> and uh, I found an ex like an old external hard drive. It's like currently in the ICU still as it was directed. And then my, and then my uh, friend and, and documentarian had a backup. And like literally in the last second, she said, oh, these say Mo Nebulous on these externals. I'm like, those are got to be it. So she said to me. And that exact story that I told on stage was there. So it, it was unintentional, something that happened naturally. Um, and the first special, it was like a love letter to my mom and appreciation for my mom. Yeah, that one just happened you know, as well. Second one was, was my love for Houston, my tip of the hat to Houston, and just kind of relating to the human race, really, all from all backgrounds and bringing us together. And then the encore is the encore, you know, that's just like a very personal piece of it. Ended up being about my father, which is really special. It's me knowing his conscience, you know. So so it was great, man. It was, a, it was just really just a beautiful thing that happened. It all fell into place that way. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned those those shows early in the pandemic in the in the cornfields with Chappelle and all those comedians. And, you know, I was following that along on, on Instagram, kind of very jealous of uh, what was going on there. Um, and I would love to hear more about what that experience is like. I know it's in this movie that um, that's going to come out hopefully somewhere. Um, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But that was uh, that must have been sort of some of your first times uh, performing during the, the pandemic was at those shows. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I had not like most comedians where they had like a, over a year plus of not performing. I, uh, it was three and a half months, but that was enough. Uh, it was so, if, again, I was writing my TV series 
and I was just going from my bedroom to office, like going crazy, right? No, just fucking losing my mind, if I'm being honest. Just doing this repetition and 10 hours a day on Zoom, and, you know, just nightmare, you know, the situation. The world is just literally on fire. The George Floyd civil uprising, like, like the civil unrest, it's just crazy. Um, so having that creative outlet was like necessary, was needed. And I didn't realize how bad I I was programmed. Also watching the news every day, doing that. Oh, what's happening? Where is it? This invisible thing that's going to kill us all. Like, so scary um, to feel that way. And then when I got to Ohio, I was just on the wall constantly. I'm like, uh, you know, I was just so freaked out <laughs> other people. And, and that's when I was just like, okay, I have no material. I'm just going to go up there. I'm not going to go up there and be like, hey, guys, you know, we travel. <laughs> like, 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 I was just gonna, hey man, be a schizophrenic on stage right now. Like, just be you and throwed out. And like, I kept it all the way up until the special tape. Froze out. I looked a mess. I was scared from anybody getting close to me. And I was just like, let's see what happens. Just ramble. And I would literally go like a hundred miles an hour. That 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 bit about the stock market was like thirty minutes within a ten minute joint. Like, I would just get everything down. Because the stock market is a direct reflection of American hearts everywhere. If the arrow's going down, that means hearts and souls of Americans everywhere is also going down. But look, it's working. It's going up. Americans are happy again. It's going up. It's skyrocketing. Wait, 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 wait. How, how is it skyrocketing? We're all at home. I, I thought... I, I, how is it... How, how is this thing going? I thought it was all based off of revenue streams and quarterly earnings and, and nobody's working. I get Amazon. Everybody's at home ordering. This should be skyrocketing. Well, you, Jeff Bezos, and thank you, Jeff Bezos, all at the same time. Like, but how is this still going up, bro? I thought this is all based off of money coming in. Everybody's at home. Look, man, shut the Okay, just look at the arrow. God, can't you just shut your mouth and just be happy that the arrow's going up? No, I can't, bro. We need money. Look, here's $1,200. Hush money. Shut the f up. I remember Letterman going crazy for it when he came out. He was just like, no, oh my God. Oh, <laughs> what was that? That was amazing. You know, I just like, I, my life was done. You know, like I made Letterman love me. Like, that's all I care about. Yeah. So you were there. I mean, you were there like most of the time that he was doing it, right? The the whole time. Um, and then people would kind of come and go. So what were who were some of the other people that really kind of blew you away that, that came through there during that time? Man, Bill Burr really blew me away, man. He's so damn funny. So damn funny, man. He's just so good. God, he's so good. Just love him. And just seeing him with his kids and his wife. It just you always get this like angry burr almost on stage. Not not every time, but you know, it's just yeah, burr, it's classic <laughs> burr. And just seeing him just with his kid, like with his daughter, just she's eating out of you know, he has she has him eating out of his hand. It was really cool to see. You know, not really not really the stand-up, of course the stand-up's great, but just seeing him and his uh, with his family and seeing this really sweet, you know family guy there that was that was uh, that was cool of course you know kevin hart came in and blew everybody away he's so funny it's funny over facetime he was busting chris uh chris rock's balls over facetime when he was there <laughs> like literally doing 
impersonation and just killing over FaceTime. And then he popped in for like an hour. And then uh, and Trevor Noah and Letterman. Letterman being there was like so classic. And John Stewart and just so many heroes like came in. And John I knew from before, from touring together with him and Dave. So, but just meeting Letterman was just this thing because I was going to do Letterman before he retired. He was, yeah, he retired and I did Colbert, which is obviously still the late show. It's amazing. It's not a but. And, you know, I grew up yeah. with Letterman. Yeah. Wrote Letter- no, it would have like, been, been a special thing to go, uh, to go on Letterman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like I wrote a letter to him when I was 11 or something. Like I, I want to do stand up on your show. You know what I mean? Like it's just that kind of thing. And um, and then and then I ended up you know meeting him because he was interviewing Dave in the cornfield there for uh, my next, and so that's why he came out. Uh, and once I knew he was in the audience to the left, I didn't give a shit about anybody else. I was performing, <laughs> you know, I was performing for Letterman a hundred percent. You know, I didn't I cared less about anything else. But th- that was the biggest highlights for me. And he actually got up and did some stand-up? He did. He went up and did like, you know, 10, 15 minutes. It was brief. And then he and uh, the two Daves were on stage and they were riffing together. <laughs> and he just kept being so complimentary of me on stage. And I teared up, man. It was just like a, one of the best moments of my life. You know? And that's, that's because Dave, you know, Chappelle really did that, man. He really like gave everyone an opportunity to, not only did he put like money in people's pockets and in Yellow Springs, it was their biggest economic earning ever which is in, in one of the in the in a pandemic um it is safely literally like wrote the book on what it's like to be in a bubble and it was a learning experience of course but he allowed us to do that he and his wife elaine are such special people and the family there you know that's my you know that's that's they're like family you know they're just such kind people and generous fed everybody he was testing the town not even us, not on his own dime. Anybody that wanted to get tested and come through, he would do that. It was just such a unique, like it's never going to happen again. You know what I'm saying? Like not our life, I don't think, God forbid, you know, but um, but it was just one of those moments that you literally saw the thing being navigated while also having an outlet. And I was just busy all the time. I was constantly writing and I would just perform and I would leave. It's like 90% of the time, that's what I was doing. So it was just really hard to do anything else, but just having the opportunity just to do stand up and then have a creative outlet was, was priceless. Yeah. Um, and then, so there's this documentary, which, you know, I haven't gotten to see yet. Um, and I think, you know, it's screened a few places, but it seems like it's not getting the release that maybe everybody would have wanted. And I don't know if that's a, you know, stems from all the controversy around Chappelle. Do you, do you, uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think that it's a, that it is sort of a, a cancel culture thing that, that is preventing the documentary from being seen? Well, well, he's doing screenings all over the country. A, B, I talk about it in my special, so it's great. (laughs) I talk about how I got COVID from it. It's been great. And I think it's been like a massive protector for me, honestly, (laughs) to the whole situation. (laughs) I just, I got a funny, you know, just classic comedian shit. Like, I don't know about that, but I got some hilarious stories out of it. So, I go to Ohio, and it was an amazing run of shows, like almost four months of doing these shows. And we almost made it, but we had outbreaks, and we had to stop it. And he made it into a documentary film. It's an incredible documentary film. I saw it at Radio City Music Hall. It was the first time that I got to see it. And then I watched it, I was like, wait, the end of the movie makes it look like I ruined the whole fucking party. I, 
I got COVID and the whole thing had to shut down because I was being a bitch. I was like, wait, hold on a second. I walked up to Dave, I'm like, Dave, the way you edited this, you made look that Muhammad was the villain in the whole situation. That's not the truth, bro. I, I didn't do that. He's like, ah, oh, man, nobody's gonna think this. And right after he walks away, Bradley Cooper walks up. He's like, man, it's really fucked up how you just ruined the, ruined the party in Ohio. I was like, it wasn't me. An award-winning filmmaker saying that this is what it looks like. Oh, no. And I hope, I'm sure the movie's gonna be come out at some point. I'm sure it is. I mean, it's being shown all over the country in, like, stadiums, arena. It's insane. Coming up, Mo talks about how Dave Chappelle became his comedy mentor in the first place. And later, he tells the real story behind his fateful run-in with Eric Trump, and why he hates that it's the only thing so many people know about him. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had so many incredible stand-up comedians on the show this year, including Nate Bargetze, Nikki Glaser, Roy Wood Jr., Nicole Byer, Dane Cook, and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Mo Ammer. You know, I know that, you know, you've talked a lot about him being a big mentor of yours in, in comedy, you know, in general over the years. What did, how did you actually first uh, connect with, with Chappelle when you were early on in your, earlier on in your career? Well, my biggest mentor, which I should get, a huge shout out is Danny Martinez. Martinez owned the Comedy Showcase in Houston for 30 years. And he mentored people like Ralphie May, who was 18 years old, but nobody would give Ralphie May a shot. He mentored Tishon Channon, who went on to write for SNL for 10 years. He mentored Shayla Rivera, who just had her HBO special. Um, man, there's so many people. And he took me under his wing when I was 17 years old, that I was going to be his last student. And he taught me everything there is about stand-up comedy, like the art form, the technique, being a road dog, earning your wings, how fast he foresaw my entire career. He said that, um, you know, he told me this when I was 17. He goes, you're going to do great. You're going to be on television. You're going to be touring the world. You're going to be doing this. You're going to be doing that. I see you as a TV star. You're going to have your own show. You're going to have a, a sitcom series based around your life. He literally told me all this when I was 17 years old. And he said, so you're going to be a great comedian, all that. 
because I've seen many come through. Because I, I used to book Bill Hicks, I used to book this, and I used Sam Kinison, this, that. Because let me tell you something, you've got it. It's going to take you 20 years. <laughs> he he's, like you, a, he's like an oracle. He is. No, he is that guy. Um, he was telling me stories about Janine Garofalo, how, you know, he saw her because she's going to pop, and everybody thought he was fucking crazy. She was reading from a notebook, and she was a comedian before all this even existed, right? And he was like, you're going to be huge. He walked up and like, you're so famous. And he's right. <laughs> Oh, and so he, he told me it's going to take 20 years for you to have this overnight success. And and uh, if, you, if you're on board with that, then great. If not, don't waste my time. I looked at him. I said, great. Let's do it. Let's so what did, so what, did he, uh, what did he teach you? What did, what did you, you know, Bro, literally every, Literally everything. Performance from the moment you walk on stage, how to stay alert like with the audience, assessing them before you even go on. Uh, mic technique, where you hold the mic, when you move it, go. Uh, pacing, uh, eye connectivity you know, with the audience. Uh, is bring them in, no matter how big the audience is. I love. Uh, he was teaching me about arenas before I even started working them, like how to work them, the pacing of your bits. Uh, everything goes there. When I started doing Chappelle stuff, I was just like murdering. I was just absolutely murdering. It all has to do with like what he ingrained in me. Like all the bad habits were gone. You know, he just and, and he's the, he's that guy. So he taught me everything there is to know about how to be a stand-up comedian and, and, and truly be tried and true. Like, really, really be a stand-up and perform anywhere, anytime. Microphone, no microphone. Tell me all of it. Everything. It was incredible. Incredible. No, no, and, and the comedians that were smart would listen, and they did fucking great. You know, look around for me. You know, he did phenomenal. You know, essentially the first winner of last comic standing, let's be honest. And, um, and just like Tishon himself, like the guys that really listened to him went on, and, and other comedians in general, they did very well, very well in stick up if they stuck with it. And so that's why I was, I would look around, I'm like, these guys are dumb. They're trying to fight over a spot at some supposedly a club, and they're just like not getting spots, not going on the road because they just want to hang out and not really understanding what it takes to be a stand up. I was just like, he has a dumb fight, I'm gonna do this, you know, I can see it. So he was that guy. And Dave, for me, is like, you know, if Danny gave me the mentorship on how to get here, is like, Dave, what he taught me is like, he's a true master of the art form. Like how to piece things together, but also how to like mentally prepare for this altitude, you know? So that's what that is. And it's like, a, um, he's really one of the most brilliant minds that I've ever met. And uh, I know a lot of really amazing people in my life. I'm fortunate to have that. He's just one of those incredible people that he did that himself. You know, we just started touring together. It just happened. I met him in 2007. We were doing the Alameda Funny Tour. He popped in on the show. Did an hour. His mom came. His brother came. His niece came. His uh, sister came. And we all had dinner that night. This is in 2007. It was just so surreal. He surprised our audience. Did an hour. Clean. Like, what? Nobody asked him to do anything, you know? That, and it was just incredible to witness that. Um, and then from there, you know, he was doing shows, I think, in 2011 or 12 in Oakland. And me and Azhar Rasman, another great comedian, we toured the weather, doing the world, doing all funny. He um, found out Dave was in Oakland, so we just popped in uh, in Oakland. And then next thing you know, it was like, I want to open tomorrow. I was like, yeah. I want to open the next day. Yeah. Well, the next thing, yeah, and then 2,000 shows later, nine years later, <laughs> I was. Yeah. That's wild, yeah. And it was always like that. You want to come tomorrow? It was never, I've never been booked in advance. 
would be. It's always like, a last minute that thing. It was like presumed. It was like, that's nice to know. What was it like, you know, in those first few, you know, shows or, or first times opening for him um, and going up, you know, in front of probably, I imagine that was some of the biggest crowds you had gone up in front no. of at that point, right? No? Um, when we did All I'm Even Funny, we were just, that's why Dave was so impressed what we did. We toured the world doing stand-up at different, I mean, like literally before it was like a thing. We did the, um, we did, I've already done the, uh, Royal, I mean, I did Royal Albert Hall in 2007 and eight with a band out of Denmark called Outlandish. This organization heard about me to book me for that. That's a 5,500-seater uh, that we did a, I did a couple of times. I was like, that was, it's probably still the most gorgeous venue I've ever worked. And I told Dave about it. He ended up working it. Uh, we ended up doing it together in 2018 for his first time. He was like, I, did it. I put it in his head. And I was like, this is the best venue I've ever worked, bro. I promise. It's amazing. It's breathtaking. It's charming. It's intimate. Yeah, big. Um, and we ended up doing it and I put it in his ear, you know, like to do that venue. I really wanted to do it with him and, and it being him and John Stewart. So it was that, you know, it's just like we, we did those shows. We did Durban, South Africa, 4,000 seats, uh, Cape Town, South Africa. We did 1,500 seats. You know, we were doing big venues already. Obviously, Dave is like stepped it up and it's Dave, you know, like he was still on his, in the beginning, it was, it was just as early on in his quote unquote comeback. Um, and then, of course, he just started doing those theaters. And it was so much fun doing them in repetition that often. To be able to do that, it was, it was incredible. Like nine shows at the Tabernacle in Atlanta. You could have done a whole month. They said two shows a night, you know, forever. And then he just like does that at those venues. And then we started doing like amphitheaters. And that's, of course, the biggest venue I've ever worked. Just casually, hey, you want to come to um, uh, Shoreline Amphitheater? Uh, um, you know, Nas and, and Warren Hill asked the show, can you come do it with me? And I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> I definitely fucking do that show. You know, like shit like that. And Radio City Music Hall, working with like Chance and Hannibal, which is my boy, I love him, and John and Warren Hill again. It's just, yeah, those kind of experiences obviously are, are very different. But you chomp, I chomp at the bits at those, you know, like, you're a pro. Hell no. I can't wait to get it. Give it to me. <laughs> I feel it's different. You know? 23 years professionally, it's like, come on, it's butter. Let's go. Um, yeah, I know. It's, it's wild how long you've been you've been doing it. And I, it was interesting to, you know, when I was reading about you that you actually, you know, started pretty shortly before 9-11. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was it like to, you know, be to start before that? And then how did things change for you, you know? After after nine eleven, yeah. The first time I did stand up was in ninety five. Oh wow! Yeah, fourteen in my class. <laughs> I kept doing it in my high school because it started spreading. My teachers would get me to do stand up. I would ask them; they would let me do stand up, and then I walked into the comedy clubs when I was seventeen. Um, but yeah, it was obviously a completely different landscape, and it changed things, and it really made it so much more important to be part of the culture and influence culture, and specifically with with my. You know, geographical location being in the South and touring the South, it was, it was wildly different and you know, subjected to a lot of uh, not only criticism, but, you know, prejudice and, and racism. And I didn't let that bother me. I just said to myself, like, this is what it's going to take and this is what's going to truly mold you to who you are in the future. And having those experiences are invaluable and historical in nature. So I knew that was happening even though I was broke as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I knew that it was important to stay steadfast and move forward and, and, and be an influence in culture. And I, and I was always so ahead of it that I just was waiting for Hollywood to catch up. And thankfully, it did. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you really started to actually blow up during the Trump years, which is, I guess, ironic maybe in some ways. But you know, you had that that story about your run in with Eric Trump, which went viral and draw, drew a lot of attention to you. Um, you know, also you know coming out in uh, being so in Rami. You what? I hated that so much when Dave saw that. He goes, he goes, bro, famous chasing me. I was like, I don't want him to chase me like that. <laughs> That's not how you wanted to get fame, is that what you mean? No, you get you want it to be on the merit of your, you know, your art, the way you contribute. You were not thrilled with the way that uh drew attention to you. So what was that what was that experience like of all of a sudden, you know, you got a lot of incoming uh, you know, people wanting to terrifying. talk to you about that or Well, I didn't think how big of a deal it was because his dad just had gotten elected and I landed in Scotland to hundreds of emails from every publication you could ever imagine. Text from everyone. And just as my friend I was like, why is this such a big deal? It's so dumb. Like we just talked for a little bit. He goes, Bro, no one has talked to the Trump family. Shut it down completely. You're literally the only one on earth <laughs> that has addressed this and talked to them publicly. Yeah, and and, I, and there was some sort of like catharsis for people, the the idea that you were confronting him or you know, sort of But it was bringing... both. The Trump side used me like, see, look at us, you know what I mean? They were using you to say like, that they, oh, were, no. they were cool with they were cool with with Muslims, or is that what is that what they that. were trying to say? Yeah, my my son, you know, took a trip all the way to fucking. Oh, great! I'm glad you can muster that in first class. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that was one thing. But immediately, I realized how big it was, and I and I was on tour, you know, doing you know a regular tour throughout the. Actually, it was like a really rigorous tour throughout uh, England and Scotland. However. I knew it was like, hey man, you got to go make this funny immediately. Like, this you wanted is to kind of take take control of the take control of yeah. the narrative in some ways. Take control of the narrative, but more importantly to me is that you know I'm a real fucking stand up. You know, like this is not some gimmick. You know, I'm not a gimmick. I'm the real deal. Like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go work this out immediately. So I would do my set, like the tour set, and I can't because people are expecting a you know a show. Of course, they, we're doing theaters throughout England and Scotland can't just workshop bits that much i would have a line or two so i would leave the show and the local comedians in england wherever we were in one city they would set up you know they would tell me all oh, this open mic going on it's like great and i would just run to that open mic and i would start doing start working out the bit and i realized how big it was when i was in midlands nowhere england and i would go up at an open mic and there was people in the audience they go hey that's the guy <laughs> that's the that's the guy, the Eric Trump guy. Shit, this is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's just like it's really important. So when I came back to New York, I already had the bit like primed and started doing it, and then that's when I did Colbert right after. Sure. Yeah, you, that was uh, that was sort of like your opening bit on on Colbert. Was that was that sort of a no brainer to to bring that bit to Colbert at that point? Yeah, just let it go. Release her. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's like you don't want to be known for the, you know, the photo and all that, but then you also sort of capitalize on the experience. As long as you make it funny. No, it's like, it's gotta make it funny. That's all that matters. Make it funny. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters.
you know? And I, speaking of, I recently took a flight with Eric Trump. Not on purpose, it just happened. Uh, I didn't know he was gonna be in the plane. Might have showed up in your social media feeds. Uh, but I do know one thing, the lady who upgraded me into that seat was certainly a Clinton supporter. 100%. 100%. She was like, oh, Eric Trump is on my flight? Is that what you're telling me? Oh, there's an empty seat next to Eric, is there? Huh? Let me take a look at this upgrade list. See who's waiting patiently to be upgraded. Oh, Mohammed Mustafa Emma, upgrade! do our final segment that we do on the show, which is called the first laugh. Um, so I want to just run through a little speed round of some, some firsts in your, in your career. So do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid? Oh man, I do. I do. It was the first special I saw on television. It was uh, Dana Carvey's special and had the OJ stuff and, and the PM. That was just so fun. Chopping broccoli. <laughs> Chopping broccoli. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the first joke that you told on stage? Maybe it was even in high school that that really that really worked. That you felt like you uh, you had found your a great joke. <laughs> I don't know if I found it, but it was good. <laughs> but the the first thing I did in my English class was um, was a Shakespearean monologue um, that I just made really really funny in a British accent and started playing <laughs> off. When I was fourteen, and then the then the um, the, when I did the actual bit bit, I did a delivery driver that was <laughs> a pizza delivery guy that was beaten to death by a, by a guy that the, that he was delivering pizza to. They just beat the hell out of him. It was really physical. But then when I first, his standard was just a play my name and how Texans say my name and it was Mohammed and how they would add ham in the middle of it. It's not, I'm not very proud of this joke. <laughs> I'm also, so you got laughs. Old, so it's a, yeah, it was always really, oh yeah, it was so filthy. The other one was really filthy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a quick story about a, one of your worst bombs that you've ever uh, had? Really, a show that that didn't go well? Oh, those are easy. You remember those easily? Laughs are dime a dozen. Those those stay with you forever, my friends. <laughs> what's, the, what's the what's the most memorable um, one? I don't want to say, but <laughs> how come? So okay, so I was doing all these Penn State schools. And booking like 27 Penn State schools. I'm sorry, 23 Penn State schools. I think there's only 23. They're all of them. Some of them computer campuses. So you got to do like these neuter shows. So I'm doing this new show. It's a big campus. I was like, oh, it's a big show. I'm going to kill this. so much fun. I'll get them organized. Sure enough, five minutes in, they're organized. Just kill it. Like, that's awesome. It's a breeze. What a great show. Those turned out to me. And then, um, <laughs> and then, uh, there was a class of uh, trying to figure out the right wording here. There was like students they brought in middle of the uh, middle of my set who are handicapped, mentally handicapped. And there's one. I mean, they're there. The kid, the kid, he's he knew what he was doing. <laughs> he walked in and just started booing me just right out the gate. Right? <laughs> he just goes ooh like this, and then he starts clapping, laughing at himself, and. And I swear to God, you could hear a pin drop. Okay, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. And I looked what are you at him. To do and then? I just was just smile on my face. With a smile on my face, I go, "Who brought this guy?" Right? And um, and it, it just thought it was really funny. And then, and the kids were—they're all kids. They're like 18, 19, super immature. They don't know how to handle this. So I was like, "We'll just be quiet." 
listen, every time I started to talk, he would boo me. <laughs> God. And then laugh at himself booing me. He's having a great time booing me. Like he came, he knew he was coming to a live show. And he was like, I'm going to boo. That's what I'm going to do. Nobody stopped him. Nobody tried to. It was just complete, utter death. <laughs> the next 40 plus minutes. I did 52 minutes. And that was a miracle. Um, it was like 48 minutes of just getting slaughtered. And I remember laughing in the middle of my set, just like dying laughing. Nobody knew I was laughing. But I, was, I had an out-of-body experience where I saw myself eating it on stage. And that's the funniest thing you could ever witness as a comedian, is somebody else <laughs> eating it. So I was crying. I was laughing so much at myself at the situation. <laughs> crying. And then that's I started a good, that's a good attitude to have. Oh, what am I supposed to do? I'm dead. Bro. I'm dead in the water. <laughs> And I got off stage and I hated my life and, I, and it was a neuter show. So I had another show at 7 p.m. Couldn't wait to get to that show. The balls on the guy who booked me he called my agent and goes, you know, he only did 52 minutes. He's contraction. I'll be in an hour. I was like, I was booed by a disabled person for 50 minutes. Like, it's a miracle I did that long. Like, how, how, what am I supposed to do, man? There's only so much torture one person can take. That's one of the worst things in my life, for sure. I do want to just quickly mention uh, Rami, which I'm such a big fan of your work on that show, um, and I think it's such such a great show. Oh, my God. She's already sending you selfies? Yeah. It's a blowjob for sure, bro. No, dude, it's not about that, man. It's it's so much more. Like, I haven't connected with someone like this for a really long time. Yeah, okay. You sent her a dick pic, right? Dude, no, I just met her yesterday. That's crazy. Oh, I mean, everybody likes a teaser. That's why movies have trailers. That's why they have pictures of food on menus. It's all about management of expectation. No, dude, dick pics are creepy. You know what's creepy? To pull down your pants and this random dick pops out? Are you kidding me? Dicks are weird, bro. I feel bad for women. You got to give her a chance to say no from afar. All right? It's all about consent. And so I'm, I'm wondering if there's a, a memory or, or something that stands out from your experience uh, working on that show that, that you can share something something from the set it's all really fun man those are all special moments we have when we all work together i would definitely say like mahershala being on set and my long-term friend amir suleiman who's an amazing poet and writer probably the greatest poet of our generation there like it's, it was a full circle moment for me i've been friends with amir suleiman since like 2007 eight maybe before and um, just seeing both of us there together with Mahershala, and I introduced him to Rami, and I was just, he ended up being on the show, and he had a relationship with uh, Mahershala before that. So that was really, really an amazing full circle moment. Very last thing is, I like to give comedians a chance to shout out other comics that are really making them laugh right now. So is there anyone that you want to shout out who you think is, is really funny and someone who's who's making you laugh these days? Yeah, I mean, Chris Stefano is just a nightmare of a human. Yeah. <laughs> He's just a nightmare of a person and like, like in a good way, in the best way possible. And he's so free and he's so funny. He's so energetic. There's so many men, but he, he's somebody who really sticks out. Just that Kirsten is a murderer. I feel like she needs her time. Oh yeah. She's, she's, she's been on this show. She's great. She's a nightmare. She's so funny. And uh, so is Chris. And there's just a lot of good, funny comments, man. Pop out of New York, but he's definitely one of my favorites. Cool, man. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, and good luck with the rest of your shoot. Thank you, brother. Nimesh Patel, very funny as well. All right, bro. I love, love, man. Peace, thank man. you so much for having me, my bro. All right, bye, Here, man. 
All right. Thank you so much to Mo Ammer for joining me on today's show. His newest special, Mohammed in Texas, is streaming now on Netflix. You can also see him in both seasons of Rami on Hulu, and we will be looking out for his new Netflix series, hopefully coming sometime next year. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.